Hey, good morning. It's good to see y'all. So why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Guys, that is, without exaggeration, the most significant statement in history. Like all of history turns on that statement. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Last week in Pastor Michael's message, he read these words, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared. Guys, this is what we know. Jesus died on the cross at the hands of professional Roman executioners who verified that he was dead, but on the following Sunday, his tomb was empty. Like Jesus was completely dead when they took him down from that cross and he was fully alive when he walked out of that tomb under his own power on that first Easter Sunday morning. And after that, he was seen by hundreds of people who claimed to have had personal encounters with him where he showed himself to be physically alive. Like the Bible records that after his death, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And then he appeared to his mother, Mary, and a small group of women. Then he appeared to Peter and then to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then 10 of the uh, remaining disciples, he met with them as a group, minus Thomas. And then he appeared to them again with Thomas in the room. So all the apostles were gathered. Then he appeared to seven of the apostles at the Sea of Galilee, and then all of the apostles again. In fact, repeatedly over a period of weeks, he appeared physically to group, uh, large groups of the apostles. In fact, 500 disciples of Christ saw him at one time, one time, and then he appeared to his own half-brother, James, and finally, as Paul says, as if one untimely born, he appeared to me. Like in these encounters, his physical resurrection body still bore the marks of the crucifixion on the hands and feet and side. His body could be touched and handled. It was flesh and bone. He invited people to investigate it, to look at it, to examine it. Like in what I think is most significant is that most, not most, but none of these people who claimed to be firsthand eyewitnesses to the post-crucified encounter with Jesus ever changed their story a bit. Like they never recanted. Like they held to this story even as they faced their own execution. He is risen is the most significant statement in all of history. That's not pastoral hyperbole. That's history. 
Like as, as Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, he lays the story out not as a matter of faith, but as a matter of history. He's not saying, hey, you know, just kind of disconnect yourself from the, the real world for a moment. Like leave the real world and kind of turn off your intellect, turn off your brain, and let's just kind of step into a different room, the room of faith, where we look at the resurrected Christ and it makes us feel something. And so we know it's true because it's true in our hearts. No, Paul is laying out history here. He is saying this happened. Veroslav Pelikan, who is a a professor of uh, history at Yale University uh, wrote this. He says, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not, nothing else matters. Like that is the most significant statement. Everything else pales in comparison because history turns on this. Our hopes are all tied to this. If Christ is not raised, nothing else matters. Like, hear this, guys. Christianity is nothing without the risen Christ. Like, it's just a bunch of stories and fairy tales. It's certainly not worth giving your life to. The gospel is nothing without our future hope that was guaranteed by the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if Christ is raised, nothing else matters. Everything else pales in comparison. In fact, that's what Paul says in the passage today, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, the Greeks, like many in the ancient world, held to a view called dualism, uh, kind of most significantly espoused by, taught by Plato, that humans are composed of two parts, body and soul. I mean, that makes sense, right? But for them, they taught that the soul was good, like it was pure light, but that the body was bad. And at death, the mortal body is shed like a snakeskin. And the immortal soul kind of continues on in this immaterial existence. It either come becomes one with God or it just kind of floats out there and does its own thing. But in this passage, Paul speaks not of life after death, but of resurrection. And when he talks about the physical resurrection of the body, he's not merely talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He is talking about our Physical resurrection. Like when you die, Christian, there is a temporary separation of your soul from your body. Our bodies go back to the earth and our soul goes into the presence of Christ in a place called heaven and we await the resurrection of the body. And the Bible tells us that at the resurrection, that it means a coming back from the dead in our physical and now perfected resurrection body. 
But some in Corinth were saying that there was no physical resurrection, that the resurrection of Jesus was sort of a one-off thing. Like God did that once, and that was a big deal. But for us, it just guarantees an eternal existence in the presence of God. You need to understand that anyone who tries to reduce Christianity to something that's more acceptable or palatable or understandable, that they are left with something, but it's not Christianity. And that's Paul's next point because he writes, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Like Paul is saying, you can't have one without the other. You don't get to pick and choose. The resurrection of Christ guarantees your resurrection. In fact, here's what's at stake. He writes in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that, that about God that he raised Jesus, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if Christ has, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what are the things that Paul says are at stake if it would be true that Christ had not been raised from the dead? Basically what he's saying, listen, if Christ isn't raised, everything falls apart. If Christ isn't raised, all of this falls like a house of cards, like a string of dominoes. If Christ is not raised, our message is worthless. Like if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. That word that's translated from the Greek as vain comes from a word that means empty or hollow or devoid of any content. Like if Christ is not raised, the good news is no news at all. It's certainly not worth giving your life to, giving your time to, listening to or preaching If Christ is not raised, our message is worthless and our faith is pointless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is also in vain. Because if Christ is not raised, you've lost the heart and the soul of the gospel. You got to understand, see, it's not the quality of your faith that matters. It's not even the quantity of your faith that matters. What matters is the object of your faith. Like the quality of your faith will not save you. The quantity of your faith will not save you. It's the object of your faith. You could have great faith in something that is utterly stupid. You could place your faith in a doorknob, but that doorknob is not going to save you. But if you come to Christ with weak faith focused on the one and only Savior, you will be saved. But if Christ is not raised, our faith is pointless. Because faith alone can't save you. 
Only the object can. And if Christ is not raised, we're all liars. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. So Mary Magdalene lied about what she saw at the tomb. Mary, the mother of Jesus, lied about seeing her son alive, victorious from the dead. The apostles, liars. The 500 witnesses, deluded liars. Even the apostle Paul. The Old Testament prophets saying that God would not let his Holy One see decay? Or the prophet Isaiah who said that even after Messiah's death, he would continue his days and see his offspring, those who would believe in him. Isaiah is a liar if Christ is not raised. In fact, Jesus would be a liar because he predicted his resurrection multiple times to his disciples. If Christ is not raised, we're all liars. And if Christ is not raised, we are still dead in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Understand this as one commentator put it. The gospel cannot survive a dead Savior. The gospel cannot survive a dead Savior. It's not about gathering together in church. It's not about songs. It's not about community. It's not about the trappings of religion. It's all about the fact that Jesus was dead when they took him down from the cross and he was fully, completely, totally alive when he walked out of that tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning. Understand, no forgiveness exists without the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is a testimony that God the Father received the payment for sin that Jesus made on the cross. If Jesus is not raised, then you better hop back on the treadmill of religion and try your hardest to make yourself right with God. Good luck with that. If Christ is not raised, Paul says the dead are lost forever. Then those who have also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep in Christ. That euphemism means nothing. They're not asleep. If Christ isn't, day, isn't raised, they're not asleep. They're dead. Like all funerals are the final goodbye if Christ is not raised. And if that's true, we are to be pitied if Christ is not raised. If Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if this is all we have, if this is as good as it gets, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now for you, maybe that comes as a contradiction to a rendition of Pascal's wager that you've heard. You know, Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician, died, he was a 
child prodigy, died before he was 40, a brilliant man and a believer. But he had this idea that, you know what, you just need to challenge people with this message. Listen, if you simply believe in Jesus, what do you have to lose? Like, what do you have to lose? If you're wrong, you're nothing. You've lost nothing. But if you're right, you gain everything. So why not accept Christ just in case it's all true? Just say the prayer, just in case it's all true. Just get baptized, just in case it's all true. Like if you're right, you gain everything. If you're wrong, you lose nothing. Why not just hedge your bets? When well, light of what Paul says here, how do you think he would respond to Pascal's wager? I think he would say, listen, if it's not true, <laughs> It would mean that my life has been totally wasted. And I should be pitied. I mean, everything hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Everything hinges on the truth of the word of God. Like if Christ is not raised, all of us should be doing something else immediately. Guys, if Christ is not raised sleep in next week. Like if Christ is not raised, stop coming to church. What a waste of time. What an absolute waste of time. If Christ is not raised, if Christ is not raised, get a bigger TV. Go on vacation. Save your money. Don't tithe it to the church. Go on more elaborate and amazing trips. If Christ is not raised, this is all we have. So don't waste it. Now, for Blaise Pascal, living in the 15th century Christian France, there was less of a downside to this logic. For him to confess Christ in a Christian culture cost him nothing, if anything. I mean, cost him very little. However, the 21st century today is much more like the first century in how it views the Christian faith. Like we no longer have a favored status and we're not in a Christian country. There will be a high cost for following Christ. And if that's true, right, that there will be a high cost if the resurrection is not true, then we have totally wasted our lives. If Christ is not raised, we've totally wasted our lives. In fact, Paul explains it a little bit later in verse 30. He just says, why are we in danger every hour? Like, what are we doing? Like, I'm always getting persecuted. I'm always in trouble. People are always trying to kill me. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Like, I'm facing death all the time. I'm always ready to pass from this life into the next because of my testimony about Christ, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus? Like, why, if Christ is not raised, why am I suffering for nothing? I mean, if Christ is not raised, all suffering should be avoided like the plague. Are you kidding me? Right? And so he concludes, if the dead are not raised, let us eat. And drink, for tomorrow we die. 
What Paul is saying here is, hey, guys, if Christ is not raised right here and right now, this is as good as it gets. Drink it in. Like, enjoy your days, every moment of them. If you like taking naps, never miss a nap. Like, if you love meals, eat all you want, right? But you better not get too unhealthy because, you know, your days are numbered and you're not going to get any more of them. If Christ is not raised, this is as good as it gets. This is as close as you will ever get to heaven, to nirvana, to paradise, to whatever. So make the best of it. If Christ is not raised, nothing else matters. Be a hedonist. Live for yourself. You only live once, right? Like my son, Bo, when he graduated from Huddle High School with Pastor Trey, the theme of that graduating class was YOLO. You only live once. What a bummer of a theme, right? Like that was their whole theme for the graduating class. But if Christ is raised, well, then nothing else matters. Everything else pales in comparison to what Christ has done. In fact, in verse 20, Paul writes this, but... In fact, circle that, in fact. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I've seen him. 500 brothers and sisters have seen him. Many of them are still alive. Go check it out for yourself. If Christ is raised, right, then we are, he is simply the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If Christ is raised, you too will be raised. Like Jesus is just the first fruits. You see, a resurrection from the dead has already happened. Like Jesus is the first fruits, which means there's more fruit to come. This was not something that was intended simply to happen only once. Jesus is a foretaste of what's to come, right? He's, it's like at Summerfest this past, uh, um, I guess, p- past month or month, month and a half ago now, uh, I, for some reason, found myself drawn down the hill to where the cooks were cooking up their sausage wraps and hamburgers and everything else. I just felt like just drawn, like I just needed to be there. And I stood among Tracy and his team, like just drinking in all the smells and enjoying it. And then Tracy said, are you ready for one? It's like, what kind of question is that? Of course I'm ready for one. Why do you think I'm here? And he gave me a hamburger. It didn't have ketchup, no condiments, just the bun and the hamburger. And I took a bite of it. It was so hot and juicy and amazing. I told him how great it was. What if at that moment, Tracy and the cooks had said, okay, guys, let's wrap it up. Bobby's happy. And just took all their hamburgers and all the grills and everything else. And they say, hey, you know what? We just did this for one person. And if one person is satisfied, that's enough. No. Like, we would have chased them down. We want those hamburgers. Like, the, the bite I had was simply a foretaste of what everyone else was going to get. 
Guys, the resurrection of Jesus is a foretaste of what is promised to the church. There is more resurrection to come. There is more fruit. He is just the first fruit. For as by one one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to him. Guys, if you belong to Jesus, you are held secure by him. Jesus holds on to those who belong to him. And as he told his disciples on the night before he was taken, because I live, you will live. Like my resurrection will guarantee your resurrection. In Christ, you will be raised. Because I was raised, you will be raised. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Like, what is this talking about? Well, guys, this is meek and lowly Jesus. Meek and lowly Jesus. This is the Jesus who said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. This is the same Jesus who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest to your souls. Here is this same Jesus destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. See, if Christ is raised, the lamb wins. The lamb wins. (laughs) By the way, that's a picture of the right side of history. If you want to be on the right side of history, understand that the next generation will see this generation on the wrong side of history. Like this is the right side of history. When everything comes before the presence of Christ and everything that opposes God will be utterly destroyed by Jesus. And everything that glorifies God will be honored by Jesus. And can I just tell you, the older I get, the more injustice I see in the world, the more I long for the return of Christ to come and set everything right. Like when I think of the fact that Jesus is going to have everything placed under his feet, I get that image that every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord everyone, everywhere. Satan himself, through gritted teeth, will bow before the feet of Jesus and declare, Jesus Christ is Lord. So don't bow to anything that will ultimately bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords, whether it's a philosophy the spirit of this age, 
a, some kind of cultural thing, taboo, that's a big deal now. Don't bow to the things that will ultimately bow to Jesus. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. If Christ is raised, death is not the end. Like when it says that he places everything under the feet of Jesus, in that day when the Roman emperor Caesar would travel from city to city and visit those who he ruled over, he would sit upon a throne that was about four and a half feet up at his feet. And people would come and they would bow before him. They would literally be under the feet of Caesar. And the image here is that one day everyone, even death, will bow before the feet of Jesus. Death is not the end, but death does have an end. But are you living like it has an end? Like Christian, are you living as if death is the final word? Like in the last two years, many of us have, right? Many of those who claim the name of Christ are living in the same level of heightened fear that everyone in the world is. Like we know because we have the word of God that all of our days were written in a book before one of them came to be that God has ordained my steps and my going out and my coming in every moment of my day. I will die right on time. And yet we live in the same stark terror that the world has of this thing that Jesus places under his feet. Like, are you living as if death has the last word, or are you living in a way that already, right now, celebrates the victory of Jesus over the kingdoms of this earth, over all sin, over death? You know, in December of 1941, when Winston Churchill first got word that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, he knew at that moment what that meant for him. He knew that the allied forces that had been fighting Hitler and not doing so well for over two years was going to have a strong, bigger brother come to fight at their side. Like he knew, even though the U.S. had not entered the war yet against Germany, he knew that they ultimately were going to win. In fact, that night, he wrote this in his diary. He wrote, so we had won after all. We had won the war. No doubt it would take a long time, many disasters, Immeasurable cost and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Christians, we can be absolutely certain of our future victory over death and the grave. 
even though we are still waiting for all things to be put under Christ's feet. Even now, we can sleep the sleep of the saved and the thankful. If Christ is raised, death is not the end. You're going to die unless Christ returns. That is inevitable, but it does not get the final word. Because Christ is risen, this is, for the believer, as close as you'll ever get to hell. You ever think about that? If you are in Christ, if you have asked Jesus to be the Savior and Lord of your life, if you have trusted in his finished work on the cross for your salvation, this is as close as you will ever get to hell. This is as bad as it gets, guys. But if you're not in Christ, if you're an unbeliever, and you die in your sins, this is as close as you will ever get to heaven. So you better enjoy it. You better drink it in. You better get as much, just ring out as much of the joy and fun as you'll ever get because after this comes the judgment. Guys, finally, if Christ is raised, that means nothing is wasted. Nothing, nothing is wasted. No suffering, no energy, no resources, not a dime I give toward the kingdom of God is wasted. Not an hour I give to prayer or the word is wasted. Not one conversation pointing people to give to Jesus is ever wasted. Can I just tell you, let me confess, I hate sad movies. Like I just hate them. I just don't want to see them. Like my, I have a couple of my kids, my daughter and my middle child, uh, Emma and Bo, who like sad movies for some reason, right? Like I tell them, listen, I grew up in a sad life. Like I had a sad life growing up. I don't want to pay to see a sad movie. You had a happy life. You can go see a sad movie, you idiot. Uh, but go ahead and do that. If you want to do that, I don't want to see a sad movie. In fact, I'll just tell you this. I don't like sad parts of happy movies. Like when I'm seeing a really happy movie, even though I know it's going to end well, like I'm tempted just to kind of fast forward past this lull, past this drama, past this sad moment. But if I do, if I just fast forward past all the unpleasantness, I end up missing the punch of the victory. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You haven't seen anything yet. Whatever suffering, whatever cost, whatever the world calls a waste is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In fact, he goes on in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Everything I've done, everything I've said, all my time, all my energy, any of my resources spent in the direction of the kingdom of God is not wasted. A cup of cold water in his name given to the thirsty, clothing given to the poor, not wasted. 
They say of some temporal suffering, right, C.S. Lewis, they say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss can make up for it because they don't know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn every agony into a glory. Because Christ is raised, nothing is wasted. Now, I'll never forget uh, July 7th of 2014 on a Monday late afternoon when I got a call from my sister-in-law telling me that my brother John had died. Had a heart attack. He's only 53 years old at the time, just 18 months older than me. He was my closest brother in age and in relationship. Like we were best friends. He was my brother in Christ as well. And his life was over. Now I'd received that call many times because my brother Jimmy had already died. Larry had already died. Michael had already died. My sister Bonnie. When I got that message about John, it just grieved me to my core. And it made me so angry. It was just so wrong, so unjust, too soon. But can I just tell you the thing that brought me back was because he lives, I will live also. Because he lives, John will live also. And I remembered the words of a poem I had read years before that John Piper had written for Christmas where he places these words in the mouth of Jesus, speaking to somebody who had lost a child because of him. And he said, Jesus said, I will give him back to you. See, that's the promise of the resurrection. Nothing's wasted and nothing is lost. So when I hear that trump, that trumpet sound, and the dead in Christ rise, I'm going to be looking for Jesus. But can I just tell you, I'm also going to be looking for Johnny. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that the resurrection wasn't for you, it was for us. You knew that you would be victorious. You know that you are Lord. You know that all rule and power and dominion and authority are placed under your feet. But the resurrection showed us that the sin payment was received. It showed us our future hope and destiny. It showed us that your redemption touches not just those who will place their faith in you, but Lord, you are going to restore all creation. Give us a new heaven and a new earth. And at this table now, this table of communion, we celebrate the victory of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth for the sins of all who will place their faith in him. We thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. When we stand together, as the band plays, I'd ask that you come and take your elements of communion, carry them back to your seat, and we'll take them together.
we take a moment and just bow our heads and close our eyes? And I would just ask you, in your imagination, focus your attention on the cross. The cross of Christ. Your sins are there. Your re- re- rebellion is there. Your religious morality is there. Your lostness is there. And God's judgment falls on it. As Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bore the sins of many, he made atonement for our iniquity. Night before Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Christ is raised, you will be raised. Because Christ is raised, death is not the end. Because Christ is raised, nothing is wasted. No energy, no time, no resources spent in the direction of Christ and his kingdom will ever be wasted. But it starts with, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never done that, don't waste this moment. Let this be the moment that you turn your heart, your attention, and your faith toward the only object in all the universe that truly can save you and rescue you from you. We'll be down front if anyone needs to talk or if anybody needs prayer. Hope you have a wonderful day and hope to see you tonight at the Concert of Praise. God bless you.